0: Coming up for 23 minutes to 10 o'clock If you're watching the 24-hour channels, news channels You're probably seeing uh, civil rights activist uh, Reverend Al Sharpton giving the eulogy At the George Floyd funeral out in Houston, Texas It's uh, a death in police custody That has resulted in two weeks of protests In the United States Across the country Every f- every f- state. Um, there was a protest somewhere during the course of last week and has been isolated to the United States around the world. We've seen protests in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement and also here in South Africa it has allowed us to reflect on ourselves on the, on the issue of police brutality and people who die in police custody. Professor John Mason is a professor of African history at the University of Virginia. Joins me now on the line. Professor, thanks so much for making the time for us.
1: Lester, you can call me John. Thanks. Uh, it's voice. great to hear your voice and it's great to finally connect. We've had our troubles. It's been a while. It's been two weeks in the making, but
0: the story was not going to go anywhere. Are you, are you surprised? This, let's not be, let's be clear. This is the latest in several, if not dozens, if not scores, of deaths, attacks in police custody, uh, of Black African Americans dying or being seriously hurt. It's an issue that is ongoing. But for two weeks, there's been ongoing, sustained protest. Are you somewhat surprised by that, following the 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 death of of, of George Floyd, which? From the outside, probably would have looked at yes, it caused outrage on the on 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 at the time of, of, of his death, but uh, it felt like other pro- like other protests would sort of you know blow over over the course of the, the, the next few days. Not in this case,
1: not in this case at all. Now, you know, if we had spoken last week, I would have been in despair. Um, you know, the Death of George Floyd came, as you just said, after a long string of highly publicized killings by the police of African-American men and women, unarmed, hadn't committed any crime, uh, brutally killed for no reason other than the fact that the police can get away with it and the color of their skin. And, you know, that happened on what we call in the United States Memorial Day. And Memorial Day is when we honor the men and women who have fought in the wars, fought in, fought overseas, as we say, to protect American liberty and to protect American freedom. Mm-hmm. And many of the people who have fought in those wars have been black. Uh, tens of thousands of African Americans have fought in America's wars to free Europe from the Nazis, mm-hmm. to free um, to free Asia from the grip of Imperial Japan but you know they fought for freedom that they did not enjoy at home and so invariably these African American soldiers would come back to the United States to unfreedom mm-hmm. and, you know one of those soldiers was my father and and you know the killing of George Floyd on Memorial Day just emphasized the horrible tension the contradiction between America's claims to democracy and freedom and liberty on the one end, and the grim reality of American racism on the other. Hmm. And if I can just keep ranting for a moment, let me just point out that the United States, like South Africa, was born in settler colonialism, and it was born in the conquest of, of Native Americans and the theft of their land, and it was born in an economic system that was based on the enslavement of, Af- of African people. And, you know, that is a foundational sin that we have yet to overcome.
0: Now, you, you, have, you have a history with South Africa. You had uh, lived and worked here during the 1980s. You know what it's like during the state of emergencies here in South Africa. Pre 1994, um, people who I've spoken to saying that they've never seen that level of um, police force in the United States in a very long time since the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. Some some one person uh, told me. So you so you have this 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 understanding of And also not giving and your way your age, you have a memory of the civil rights movement <laughs> in 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 the United States. You have this very keen understanding on why South Africans somewhat can relate and why South Africans should also understand and care what goes on in the united states and 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 vice versa when it comes to issues of of particularly black people dying in police custody
1: absolutely you know i've been exchanging messages and text with many South African friends over the last two weeks and those of us who are old enough to remember the 80s I first arrived in South Africa at the very beginning of 1989 and it was still the state of emergency the political prisoners had yet to be released there were about 30,000 people being held in detention and we know that most of the people who were in detention were tortured or abused. So that was the South Africa that I that I first got to know. It was, it was a terrible time. And last week, I have to say you're absolutely right, that seeing so many heavily militarized police on the streets, seeing in fact the military on the streets of American cities, seeing the brutality with which the police were fomenting violence—you know—they were creating violence. They were creating the excuse to arrest people. They were creating the excuse to beat people. That so reminded me of what I saw from the South African police and defense forces, you know, in in, in nineteen eighty-nine. I mean, it was a terrible thing, and. And Trump, he was reminding me of P.W. Bolta. Um, You know, Trump, his instincts are authoritarian. His instincts are racist. His instincts are to condemn and to crack down and to not even begin to understand the anguish of the protesters, the anger of the protesters, the reasonable anger of the protesters. So you know that iron fist that, fortunately, Trump is more constrained than mm. P.W. Boto was. And so I think the mood in the country has changed. And um, I am very, very, very cautiously mm. optimistic that, in fact, some good might come mm. out of this. And I have to say cautiously optimistic because African Americans have been protesting police brutality for <laughs> oh God since there has been a police force um, and, just, and just, we're I, talking about
0: and just I'm, go ahead. i' i'm how i 'm educating myself in just in terms of how a police force was born in the United States it wasn 't necessarily born. To protect livelihoods or pr- to protect property from what I understand and what I read, the first sort of policing force was to, prov- to protect white farmers from recently freed slaves. There is a direct correlation in, to, in, in how, um, how black bodies were policed and continued to be policed in the United States, you know, with a line that is drawn all the way from, 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 from slavery to post-slavery through Jim Crow, all the way to a modern era.
1: Well, you're exactly right, Lester. And I think we can go back to, in fact, the days of slavery, you know, the, before the Civil War, when police forces, they were called patrollers in those days. And in the American South, patrollers were there to protect property. But it was human property they were there to protect, the property of the slave owners and other human beings. And so slaves who were off the farm or off the plantation without permission or slaves who might have run away would run into these patrollers. And they were armed white men who had the power to do anything they wanted to with with the um, slaves that they might catch at night. And, you know, for the American South, the origins of policing are in exactly that. And then after the Civil War, when the slaves were emancipated, police were there to enforce white supremacy. You know, they answered to... The wealthy, the wealthy were white. They answered to the property owners. They were there to ensure a cheap, disciplined, easily exploitable workforce. Whether that meant the nanny who changed the nappies on your, on your child, or whether that meant the field hand out in the, um, out in the field. You can't separate. Police, the origins of policing in the United States from the need to control either enslaved black people or free black people.
0: Can can we separate the the ongoing deaths in detention of black um, African Americans with economic emancipation, with sites of memory, with reminders of colonial and confederate leaders in the south because early on in the show we spoke about um, issues regarding sites of remembrance and around the world. Mm. Countries are having to reckon with the with the, their past, whether it's in the UK or whether it's in King King Leopold in Belgium and the brutal control that he had over the Congo. And we received a message that said, um, "This person says I get frustrated when I hear people focusing on matters such as historical statues or street names. Not because uh, I want that historical legacy left untouched. I get frustrated because people are focused on statues and not tackling the real problems." That's equal inequality, failed education, crime, unemployment. But can you extract, can you separate these issues? E- economic justice, historical justice, and also the justice of having memory and your your sites of memory, m- memory upheld and 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 abusive sites being taken down? Can all these be separated in their own silos or should they be tackled all together at once?
1: I'm sympathetic to people who say that um, we need to address poverty, we need to address unemployment, we need to address the despair in marginalized communities, we need to to address inequality, you know, that both South Africa and the United States are grotesquely unequal in terms of income and wealth. And so I'm sympathetic to people who say these are the real issues, forget about the statues. But I also know that in South Africa, you understand that roads must fall. That is, that people understood that symbols have power, you know, and they do at least, they do many things. But let me just mention um, two things that these symbols do. The statue says, this is who we are and this is what we honor. And when you have a statue of somebody like Cecil Rhodes, or in Virginia, we have a statue of General Robert E. Lee, who led the Southern Army in defense of slavery, to preserve slavery. When a city has a statue like that, you're saying that we honor this colonizer on the one hand, or this general who fought a war to preserve slavery on the other, that these are honorable men. We look up to them, that we create these massive monuments to them. And when you stand underneath these monuments, you are dwarfed. You have to look up. You feel your smallness in comparison to this great man. The other thing that these statues do is that they lie. They lie about history. Mm. And so that when we look at a statue of Cecil Rhodes we don't see the immense suffering and exploitation that he was responsible for and the, the the tremendous wealth that he got from exploiting the labor of african miners and we don't see the wars that he fomented and the bloodshed that was required to open up his diamond and gold mines when we look at a statue of a Confederate general like Robert E. Lee, and we see an admirable man on a horse on this giant monument that completely erases slavery, that completely erases, you know, the suffering of millions, and I say millions of men and women just in the United States. Let me give you one number. In the United States, at the time of the Civil War, there were 4 million enslaved people now that's as many people as live in the entire cape peninsula right mm. it's an astonishing number of people and they were beaten they they were beaten they were whipped the women and girls were subject to sexual abuse children were ripped out of their mothers' arms families were destroyed <sighs> mm. it's unspeakable and almost unimaginable suffering that is completely erased mm by that kind of monument that are built to Confederate generals like Robert E. Lee. So, you know, they both, these statues send the wrong message about what we value as a people, Mm -hmm. and they also lie about history. And so I think that... We, we do want them to go, you know, that it is important that future generations see these things only in storage. They're not in the most prominent place in our city. They're, they're not in a place of honor. They're not something that constantly reinforces their message every time you happen to drive by or walk by. Um, I think symbols are, 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 are powerfully, powerfully important. And I think that it's not an either or. You know, when we talk about removing a statue, we're not talking about something that in the grand scheme of things is very expensive, mm. you know, that you can't build a hospital with the money that you spent to remove the road statue. Right. You know, so um, I think you you address inequality And you do something about these horrible monuments at the same time.
0: One thing that perturbs me about being in Cape Town is that we have not ourselves reckoned with our own slavery past. Yes, there's the slave launch. Yes, there's a a, a small commemoration of the slave auction tree Similarly, when I have been to the United States in New Orleans, I've been to Congo Square, a small area there. I know of the African-American Museum in in D.C. What is blocking us from telling our stories? And you as a historian yourself, what is – I know you've spent lots of time here, you know, with, with um, researching uh, um, Cape Minstrel organizations here in South Africa. What is stopping us from telling our stories and commemorating our own history and our own legacies of where we've come from, even if it is as painful as a period like slavery.
1: Yeah, it is a painful, painful, painful question. Um, let me I'll, I'll answer your question, but just a second. I want to make a small correction that I did not simply research the Cape minstrels, but I was a member <laughs> of these <laughs> the minstrel, minstrel trips. You were. A I, I you was were a the Klops, minstrel man. I was a Klops. And I, you know, <laughs> I had the gear, I had the umbrella, I marched. I mean, you know, this is, uh, and for four years, you know, I was a member of minstrel Troops. So yeah, it was, it was a, look, I loved it. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I loved the carnival. I loved the Klopsa. Um, I love the people that I meet, met some of the warmest, some of the most open people, some of the funniest people that I ever met. Um, and you know, to be, to feel like you're part of the family in Hanover Park Mm -hmm. or to feel like you're part of the family in Woodstock, um, Woodstock before gentrification. Mm -hmm. Um, it was, it was super important. And you know, those four years were four of the best years of my life. um, But to get back to your question, you know, one thing about African-Americans is that we have a strong group identity and we have had a very, very strong group identity for as long as we've been in the United States, right? That um, African-Americans had a sense of themselves as a people that goes back 200, 300 years. And, you know, you can see... Mutual aid societies, for instance, growing up among the tiny handful of free African-Americans, even during the days of slavery, and they would give them, they would name their mutual aid societies, you know, the African People's Benevolent Society or something like that. Um you know at the time of the american revolution there was the formation of the first black churches and the largest of them called called themselves the african methodist episcopal church mm-hmm. that sense of blackness of africanness you know the name changes over time. I mean, we were called, we, we were colored for a while. We were Negroes for a while. We're black. We're African-American. But it's the same sense of self that's very powerful.
0: Unfortunately, I would love to continue this conversation, but we have to end it. We are running out of time in the show. Professor John Mason, thanks so much for joining us. Professor of African History at Virginia University, thanks so much for joining us.